Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. 50 years ago today, a break-in went awry. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. Those headquarters were located in the Watergate building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. They were caught red-handed, photographing documents and trying to bug the offices. Nobody knew it at the time, but this break-in was the first in a series of events that spiraled into the Watergate scandal and, eventually, the downfall of an American president. If you're like me, your mental image of this moment comes from a movie. Car 727, car 727, open door at the Watergate office building. Possible burglary, see the security guard. Unit one to unit two. What? We're home. The first time I saw all the president's men, I was in journalism school. I remember feeling like, wow, this is how journalism really works at the highest levels. It can hold the most powerful people in the world accountable. Even today, my dad is proud that I work at the Washington Post, in part because of how this movie shaped his perception of this place. And so over the years, like you said, it's been used in journalism schools everywhere to teach the practice of daily journalism. But it's also sort of turned into almost a metonym for Watergate. That's Anne Hornaday, The Washington Post's chief film critic. And what she means is that this movie has become a stand-in for this entire period in history. All the President's Men is considered one of the greatest films ever made. But it's also become something bigger than itself, a kind of repository of our collective memory. That's even the case for Bob Woodward, one of the Washington Post reporters who covered the story. If talk to people about it and go around the country or the world even, and their memory of Watergate is the movie. And that means that our memories of this complicated historical moment are shaped by a fictionalized version of events, one that leaves things out and tweaks them to make them more dramatic. It's not always what actually happened, but it feels like it is. It's sort of the blessing and the curse of becoming a masterpiece is that, well, then that becomes the thing. You know, that becomes the vessel for our feelings about something and our memories of something, whether it, it intended to or not. But when you get to the stakes, I mean, I guess the stakes are, are nothing less than public memory itself. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 17th. Today, on the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, we look at the classic film that still shapes our understanding of this event and hear how the movie we know almost didn't exist. So Anne, who are the major players involved in making All the President's Men, and who did you get to talk to for this story? 
Well, the major players were Bob Woodward. How do you want to sit and do this? And Carl Bernstein. According to this, it's recorded. Who's early investigation of the Watergate burglary in the summer of 1972 helped get the Watergate investigations rolling. But I, when you ask, like, who are the major players in this story, I would say by far the major player in the movie was Robert Redford. I just felt that there was a story underneath the story that people thought they knew. I was able to interview both Woodward and Bernstein for the story, as well as lots of other people who were connected to the film, pretty much everybody who's still alive who was connected uh, with the film. I had interviewed Robert Redford several years ago, um, and he went into great detail about his experience making the movie, and we are going to hear some archival tape of him speaking about the film in subsequent years. During that summer of 1972, Robert Redford was doing publicity for a movie called The Candidate, where he played kind of a, you know, an idealistic, but also sort of directionless political figure. And part of the publicity push was doing kind of a fake whistle-stop tour through Florida that was all pegged to the Democratic National Convention going on down there. This was in July, so the break-in had happened a few weeks earlier. And he said, what what went on there? And the reporters were kind of cynical. And they said, oh, no one's ever really going to know. And, you know, he said, well, why don't you investigate it? And they, they kind of poo-pooed him for thinking that this story was important and that they should not be covering him, <laughs> but they should be in Washington covering this story. We got a lecture about how it works. And they said, look, it's... Both parties do it. It's dirty tricks. Both parties do it. That's not new. Nobody wants to be on the wrong side of this guy if we've been going after him at that time. And most people of this summer are only going to be interested in whether um, Hank Aaron beats Babe Ruth's record. At that point, Woodward and Bernstein were getting to be a little bit more well-known. And according to Redford, he read a profile of them. When I read the profile of the two guys, their differences really interested me. I thought, gee, they're so different. And it also suggested the article that they didn't really get along that well, uh, but they had to work together. And that's what got me. And I thought, now, that is really, I would love to know what that was like. How do those guys work together? He was just fascinated by them as this sort of mixed-matched couple of reporters that were thrown together told to cover the story together, even though they were temperamentally very different, they were stylistically very different, they had very different strengths and weaknesses, they were different politically, they were completely different culturally. And he just thought that that made for a very good character study. It isn't about Nixon. It isn't about the national event. It's about what these guys did that other people weren't doing underneath the story that everybody knows. Can you tell me a little bit more about how Woodward and Bernstein reacted when Robert Redford, this huge Hollywood star, approached them, these two reporters, about making a movie? You know, generally when Robert Redford would call up someone, you would think they would return his calls, but not Bob Woodward. The questions I had, is this going to be a good thing for journalism for the Washington Post, for reporters like Carl and myself. When he got in touch in the fall of 72, they had just 
agreed to do a book. You know, they were still reporting out the stories. Doing a movie was the last thing on their mind. Woodward came over to me one day, and, and we were damn near on deadline. And, and he said he got a call. But the gist of it was that Robert Redford was interested in, in what we were doing and possibly for a film or whatever. And I said, Jesus, don't talk to him because somebody here at the paper or outside is going to think that, that we've got an agenda that goes beyond the story. We cannot talk to him. The last thing they needed for their credibility as journalists was the news to get out that they were working with Hollywood. Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, was under enormous pressure at the time from the Nixon administration, who were pushing back on the articles constantly, threatening her, threatening her company's television licenses. The last thing she would have wanted was a Hollywood movie to sort of... um, to get it wrong. So, yeah, Woodward put him off for several, several months. And it was finally in the spring of 73, and he said, that's it, I, I have to call again. So he called Woodward and said, please, 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 just give me one half hour. And that at that point, Bob Woodward said, okay. And even then, uh, Woodward... I was squirrely about this. You know, he was not, he was absolutely not... Um, convinced that this was a good idea, but he thought it would at least be fair to meet with Redford. And we kind of agonized over this. But as Woodward said later, I think, or I said, you know, we really knew all along we were going to say yes. What got them to give in? I think it was Redford's assurances. I think when they realized he was serious. See, Redford's at heart a reporter. And uh, he would talk to extract information about what happened, what it meant. So he was always, what happened? What did they say? What did you say? What did you think? What's the meaning of this? And so I think once they met with Redford and Redford made them understand that he wanted the exact same things they did, Mm-hmm. That allayed their anxieties. So, Anne, you actually got a copy of an early draft of the screenplay that Bob Woodward gave you. And I see you have a copy of it with you right now. I'm wondering if you can just describe what it looks like, if you can, you know, as you're flipping through it, um, tell us what some of your first impressions of it were as you were looking at it. First of all, this cracks me. It's, 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 Typewritten is written on a type, a thing we used to call a typewriter. Um, type 161 typewritten pages with a blue paper cover on it. And this is actually labeled second draft, written by William Goldman. Of course, now William Goldman, who unfortunately died in 2018, um, by the time he wrote this, he had already written two movies for Robert Redford, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Great Waldo Pepper. And of course, he went on to write so many classic films, including The Princess Bride, which became sort of a generational touchstone. But but here, he's definitely still in that Butch Cassidy mode. He was really known for comedic timing, 
He wrote great banter. He wrote snappy dialogue. <laughs> you just keep thinking, Butch. That, that's what you're good at. <laughs> Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. And you definitely see traces of that, more than traces. You, you see that throughout the, the script. Alan Pakula, who directed All the President's Men, famously said later that when he first read this draft of the script, he called it Butch Woodward and the Sundance Bernstein <laughs> because it was so quippy and so full of those one-liners. But it, it's, you know, as, as much as that might not have been appropriate for All the President's Men, it doesn't mean he was a bad screenwriter. He was a great screenwriter. And so much of his greatness is really evident in this in this screenplay, especially the structure um, and the scenes that that never changed. Now he would go on. It's interesting. He he did win the Oscar for All the President's Men, deservedly so for the work that he did on it, especially that structural work. But this screenplay is just a fascinating artifact and document of how much the movie changed from these initial attempts to what we finally saw on screen. Can you take me back to that first experience of reading that? I read it and I was horrified. And how could this have happened? We both said at that moment somewhere, if there is to be a movie, it has to be absolutely accurate. It has to follow the book. And uh, there can't be any fictionalized. And in many cases, thanks to Woodward's feedback. I mean, you know, you see his, he wrote in black pen throughout the entire thing in the margins, no, you know, wrong, too dumb, sometimes great, you know, sometimes uh, this didn't happen. If you can cast your mind back, what was the most important to you in terms of, you know, when you were giving your feedback, what was crucial to you to, to either get in or to take out? Well, that the, the the facts, the facts. But a lot of that feedback did make its way into the final film. And Carl Bernstein, by the way, was also providing feedback. We truthfulized. That's, that's a great term, truthfulized it. And basically what I thought was, wow, you can really see how dramatically different the movie would have been. What could have been a disaster turned into a masterpiece. I wanted to talk about some of the film's most iconic scenes and how the film version, the final version, how closely they hew to the truth and how much they stray from them. So let's just go through a few. You want every request since when? My favorite instance of that is early in the reporting process when Woodward and Bernstein go to the Library of Congress. I'm not sure you want them, but I got them. So this is an early scene when Woodward and Bernstein go to try to find book slips um, indicating what books E. Howard Hunt, the consultant, security consultant, had checked out from the White House library. It's a needle in a haystack job, and so they get just looks like hundreds if not thousands of call slips that they have to go through one by one. And the camera starts on the guys uh, thumbing through these pieces of paper and the camera slowly pans up through the rotunda of the Library of Congress. That mu music kicks in, the camera starts to move and we and that is just this visceral 
moment when we feel just how huge this job is. Maybe they pull the cards. Maybe they change the names. Put a card there and we missed it. And how does this final version that was in the film differ from the earlier drafts? In Goldman's second draft, to button up that scene, he keeps them inside the library. and Woodward turns to Bernstein and says, anything? And Bernstein says, nothing worth a damn. And then it has me in the script saying, to hell with this, let's write it anyway. And I wrote, wrong, not only wrong, actually disturbing. Not only would, you know, they never say that. They didn't, obviously they didn't do that. They would never have thought that. Um, It's completely at odds with the kind of verisimilitude and fealty, you know, to journalistic practice that Redford wanted, that Woodward and Bernstein wanted, that Bakula wanted. So that's just one that 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 really stuck out at me when I first read this. I was like, oh, my goodness, that kind of sums up how different it all could have been. That's wild. And I just wonder if it went the way Goldman had originally written it. I mean, does it matter that it hemmed more closely to the truth, the final version? Why does it matter? To the degree that it does represent journalistic practice, uh, it matters a lot. You know, it matters a lot in terms of just our ideas about, about journalistic integrity and how people do their jobs and professionalism. And it's not, you know, by the way, it's not always pretty. You know, they manipulate people. They deceive people in this movie. They pretend to know things they don't. They kind of, they come up with little ruses to get people to do what they want. But by and large, that's why they show it to you in journalism school, right? If they had made this movie, the Let's Write It Anyway version... That would not be taught in any journalism school. Okay, let's go to another scene. It's probably the best-known moment in the movie. So this is a meeting with um, Bob Woodward and his confidential source who became known as Deep Throat and who in 2005 came forward as uh, Mark Felt, who was the acting deputy director of the FBI at the time. Where are you? Stuck. Story is stalled on us. And you thought I'd help? This is staged in an underground garage filmed by the great cinematographer Gordon Willis, almost in complete darkness, which was so counterintuitive. Again, you have your biggest movie star in the world, gorgeous, that people love to look at, and you basically put him in shadows. Supposedly he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Where? I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. Felt did not literally tell Bob Woodward, follow the money. But in speaking with Woodward, 
it turns out when Sam Irvin, who headed the Senate committee investigating Watergate, when he was beginning his investigations, he called Woodward in for a meeting. But at one point in their conversation, and this is in the book, All the President's Men, Woodward says, the key is the finances and the finances must be traced. And Goldman, to his credit on this, got the substance right, but you, you know, followed the money, follow it, not uh, could have used trace the money. It, it wouldn't be as conversational as follow the money. So that could be, you know, one of the greatest paraphrases in cinematic history. Okay, but no one actually said follow the money. I just want to be clear on, I feel like, my life has been a lie, Anne. <laughs> this is this is the grand contradiction of of movies, especially because if you're being taught this movie in journal in journalism school, um, I can see why you would feel a little bit um, unsettled or dislocated by the fact that that nobody ever literally said these words. But I guess what I would say as a film critic. Um, an understanding that all films lie on a certain level, right? But I guess by way of comfort, I would tell you, no, no one literally said follow the money, but mm. it's not as if that was just pulled out of nowhere. Right. It, it has its roots. It really does. It, it does have its roots in, in real life. So I guess that's that's kind of where I've I've come to land on that. After the break, we bring you a scene that never made it into the movie and introduce you to one of Watergate's unsung heroes. We'll be right back. So, Anne, what about the things that were left out of all the president's men? I mean, we've touched on some of that already, but wasn't there a deleted scene with the Washington Post's publisher, Catherine Graham? By way of background, uh, Mrs. Graham was never 100 percent comfortable with this movie uh, until she saw it. (laughs) She was really, really reluctant and understandably so. And she didn't want to be in it. But all the way along, this scene was in pretty much every draft but finally they i think they um i think half sort of acceded to her wishes and also realized that maybe the movie didn't quote unquote need the scene so Anne, we did something kind of special we've actually enlisted some of our very talented colleagues from the post to pull out their acting chops and perform this deleted scene we're going to listen to that now uh but first why don't you set it up for us well, this is a scene that comes pretty pretty late in the film. It's based on a scene that Bob and Carl wrote about in the book, All the President's Men. It was also Catherine Graham wrote about it in her memoir, Personal History. And it's a, it's a meeting that did take place when she summoned Bob Woodward to her office. Um, at this point, you know, he had met with Deep Throat several times. She was under enormous pressure from the Nixon administration, from readers, um, from, you know, advertisers. I mean, so much of the pressure that was on the paper during the Watergate investigation fell on her shoulders. And 
so this scene just just really gets to that. Um, and I am so excited to hear it dramatized. I can't tell you. Yeah, me too. And the first thing we're going to hear is a narrator reading aloud the stage directions from the script as written by William Goldman um, to set up the scene in Catherine Graham's office. So let's hear it. Cut to a large and lovely office and a lovely woman standing alone in it, looking out one of the many windows. It is Catherine Graham, the unsung hero of this story. Thank you for finding time for me. Your Woodward. They shake hands. Well, now, what are you boys doing with my newspaper? What we can with what we have, I guess. Are we going to know about all of it, do you think? I wish we knew. It may never come out. Never? Please don't tell me never. Cut to the view of Washington out the window. It's like everything else in her office. Lovely. Ben says you've worked up some wonderful sources. We've got an FBI agent and some Justice Department people, yes, ma'am. And the underground garage one. My friend, yes. That's not what you called him down in the newsroom. Your friend. Deep Throat. Oh, yes, after the, uh, the... After the art film of the same name. (laughs) Why that, I wonder? He's on deep background. He can never be quoted. Or identified. Would I know him, do you think? I couldn't say for certain. But it's possible. It is. You've never told anyone who he is. Woodward shakes his head. But you'd have to tell me. If I asked you. Woodward nods. Tell me then. I would, if you really ever wanted to know. I really want to know. Caught between a rock and a hard place, he is silent until... (laughs) I was only kidding you. I have plenty of burdens to carry around. I don't need another. We're going to need lots of good luck, aren't we? Nobody ever had too much. Cut to close-up, Mrs. Graham. As abruptly she reaches out, touches Woodward on the arm. Do better. Well, first of all, I'm just really impressed by our colleagues, I have to say. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Yeah, who knew exactly? Um, But also, I'm just wondering, like, hearing this now, uh, what are you feeling about what could have been in this movie? Mm, It is so bittersweet. And I have to admit, I have a tear in my eye. I really do. Um, It's so touching. And it would have been—I just love that Goldman called her the unsung hero because she was. As much apprehension as she did have about the film, and she was not happy about being in it— I think once she did see it and realized how good it was, then she was sorry she wasn't in it. And I just wish she could have seen this and heard this. Um, I just think it would have meant the world to her. Yeah, and I'm just so struck by 
this sort of swagger and confidence that Catherine Graham has in this scene, mm. but also you get a real sense of the stakes. I mean, this is when she says, you know, what are you boys doing with my paper? Right. Um, I mean, at the end, it, it does fall on her. But it's it just, you know, thinking back in the 70s, how powerful to it would have been to have seen a woman, um, this publisher, legendary publisher, uh, you know, dealing with the situation and and just the way in which she, you just get a sense of her power, but also that it really will fall on her to some to a large degree if everything falls apart, right? Absolutely. And, and you're right about her position at that time was so lonely. I mean, she was one of the very few, if not the only female owner of a, of a media company. I think one of the only, if not only, women publishers. I mean, she was really... And then... Um, Having already done battle with the Pentagon Papers, and now here she is again, it was just I can't imagine a more kind of isolated, scary place to be. And then she just shouldered all of that with such grace and aplomb and self-assurance. Now I want to go to the end of the movie. And visually, what are we seeing as we hear these typewriters clacking away? So it's sort of this flat expanse of a newsroom. And there is two two small figures uh, in the middle of the shot. One is Woodward, one is Bernstein. They're kind of tapping away at their typewriters. There's a television in the foreground. There's another one in the background. And it's uh, Richard Nixon's second inauguration. President, are you ready to take the constitutional if you will place your left but they're they're the typing away while we see right Nixon hand. being sworn in again. And now he's up there smiling and they're doing the 21-gun salute, the cannon, boom, boom. And we're typing away. The typing, the sound of the typewriter gets loud and the 21-gun salute muted and finally, in the end, is drowned out. I think symbolically, what Bakula wanted to convey there was that these guys are going to keep working and that ultimately they will prevail. But it's going to take a very long time and a lot of those hits on the typewriter. I mean, it also gives me a sense that they were responsible for what was to come, eventually Nixon's resignation. I mean, it left out a lot of the events that came after. So I'm just wondering, when we talk about the idea of collective consciousness and how this movie cemented it, whether it created this impression for the public, for, you know, like generations of journalism students and, you know, just generally people, um, it created this, I don't want to say false impression, but a maybe misaligned impression from from the truth and what could have gone in there that would have, you know, massaged that a little bit. Yep. I, I take your, I totally take your point. And I think, you know, even at the time, um, 
Ben Bradley, Catherine Graham, the reporters, everybody at the Post were were battling the the drumbeat coming from the White House, which is the Post is out to get Nixon, right? The Post wants to bring Nixon down. That's kind of a myth that the leadership of the paper fought for years. You know, and Ben w- would constantly say, no, the Post did not bring down Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon brought down N- Richard Nixon. But ironically, as as right on as this movie was, and as much as it did get right, I do think it it reinforced that myth. For a lot of people, this movie is their understanding of Watergate. I'm wondering if you can just talk about how it has shaped our collective memory of this of this event and what does it mean when a movie eclipses the event in popular imagination and is there a cultural danger to that? I've given this a lot of thought um, about the cultural impact of this movie, and and it's it's a subject I've actually given a thought to beyond this movie, just about how movies shape our perception of history and our public memory. I just think the movie is so good at what it does. It never set out to tell the story of Watergate. If it had, then of course it would have had to have told the story of so many other reporters and congressional committees doing their jobs and federal investigators doing their jobs and the courts doing their jobs. But that was never what Redford set out to do. And so, therefore, this movie doesn't do that. Now, what I'm about to say is not, quote-unquote, the fault of the movie. But in telling this story, and the fact that this story happens to be the one that has stood in for Watergate... I think as much as it celebrates the role of journalism in public accountability, it then renders kind of invisible a time, an instance, when the institutions of government worked. You know, they might have taken a while, but they ultimately did work. And I would love there to be as exciting and cool and classic and iconic a movie about that as there is about journalism. Anne Hornaday is the chief film critic for The Washington Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff with additional production from Bishop Sand. It was edited by Robin Amer and mixed by Sean Carter. Sean also played the role of the narrator in our deleted scene. Rachel Mantufel played the role of Catherine Graham, and Drew Goins played the role of Bob Woodward. Historic tape in this episode comes courtesy of the Freedom Foundation. You also heard tape of Robert Redford speaking at a panel hosted by the LBJ Library in 2011. Thanks to them. Special thanks to David Rowell. You can read a full version of Anne's story in the Washington Post magazine. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. Our editor is Alexis Diao. Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnick, and Rennie Svernovsky are producers. Savvy Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. Our intern is Natalie Bettendorf. 
The Post's director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 